Well, let me encourage you, uh, please, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, we're going to start in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so uh, probably it's better for you to turn to 1165, page 1165, 1164, 1165, 2 Corinthians 11. And we're beginning a new series looking at uh, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 7 and 8 over these next uh, four weeks. A few years back on a milestone birthday, a good friend of mine wrote this on the birthday card that he sent to me. Paul, in a world obsessed with beauty, wealth and success, you are a refreshing change. (laughs) Well, with, uh, with friends like that... Uh, But he's right, you know, about society, that is. We do live in a society that is obsessed with beauty, wealth and success and happiness and luxury and and the media exalts wealthy, successful and beautiful people and we idolise them. The beautiful and successful are the gods and goddesses of our day. We want to be like them. So publishers print magazines that tell us how to be beautiful, wealthy and successful. I bought a couple of magazines to make the point. Uh, here's the first one that I bought. It's Hello. And now, I do want to throw in a disclaimer at this point. I only bought these to illustrate the point. <laughs> David has already made a claim on them afterwards, so I'm sorry, but he's going to have them. But uh, here is... Um, he gives it out from the pulpit. He's got to be able to take it as well. Um, here is Hello Magazine, and it is nothing more of them... Actually, it's a bit revealing. I'll just turn it over like that a bit. It's a bit revealing. Isn't it? It, is, um, it is nothing... It's no good turning it open either. It's just as bad inside. Oh, there's a picture of a, a bowl of soup. We'll hold it up. <laughs> it's nothing more than pictures of people who've made it, except, of course, this bowl of soup, which didn't really make it very far. Um, It's full of uh, pictures of sports stars and film stars and pop stars and they're all beautiful. Now here is another magazine. This magazine goes to a slightly different audience, a Women's Weekly. Uh, David has also made a claim on this one. Um, It's a slightly different audience but it is the uh, the same message. Uh, Look at this, uh, easy ways to get a great shape. Firm your body, burn the fat. No gym, you can see why David wants it. And uh, 34 summer sizzlers. Well, anyway, we should probably stop there. I I could have bought many more magazines like this, but I just couldn't bring myself to part with my money on this sort of rubbish. There were men's magazines as well. They were the sort that I certainly didn't want to pick up uh, in a newsagent, and uh, you know that the vicar had done that. So I left those on the... But they're all doing the same thing. They're all doing the same thing. And never mind the magazines. Television is flooded with programmes about makeovers and cosmetic surgery, game shows that can make you rich and talent contests that turn ordinary people into overnight successes. And then there's the commercials. The advertising executives know that we are more likely to buy their products when they are endorsed by successful, beautiful and wealthy superstars. Our society craves beauty, wealth, success and happiness and and Christian, we too are bombarded by the message that these are the things that really matter. And so let's not be fooled we too can be seduced by these very same things. Let's face it, who doesn't want to be attractive and wealthy and successful? And who doesn't want to enjoy a happy and comfortable lifestyle? And so when leaders in the church tell us that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy, is it any wonder that Christians believe them? 
it is a very appealing message. Because that's what we want and everything around us tells us that's what we should have. Now that's the sort of situations the Christians in Corinth found themselves in. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. And make no mistake about it, the Corinthians knew how to enjoy life. At reading Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we can see that they loved people who were powerful and impressive. They loved great oratory. They were always impressed by the more dramatic and ecstatic experiences that were on offer. Those were the things that their culture valued and craved and the church too had been influenced and, dare I say, seduced by the popular thinking of the day. And so when a group of impressive, powerful leaders swaggered into the church in Corinth, people who were great orators and who could boast of the most extraordinary Christian experiences on offer, people who promised a victorious Christian life free from suffering and struggles. When leaders like that arrived in the church in Corinth, the Christians were ripe for the picking. They were easy fodder for leaders who sold them a message of health and wealth and success. And so the Christians in Corinth quickly began to follow these church leaders and that's why Paul wrote what we now call 2 Corinthians. The Christians in Corinth were following these new leaders but with devastating effect because these new leaders had a different message. It would have looked very similar, but actually it was miles from the truth. Now, to help us to understand the issue, uh, to prepare us for chapters 6, 7 and 8 over these next few weeks, uh, have a look at chapter 11 and verses 2 to 6 and you'll see the issue here. And as I read chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, hear Paul's passionate concern for the Christians that he's writing to. Chapter 11, verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. These super apostles, as Paul sarcastically calls them, had muscled their way into leadership in the church in Corinth and were preaching, did you see it, a different Jesus and a different gospel, verse 4. And now the Corinthians were listening to them and following them. They were very persuasive. Their preaching was magnificent. They were trained speakers. Paul, by comparison, was nothing much to listen to, as you can see as he says himself in verse 6. And as a result, the Christians in Corinth were taken in by these super-apostles, not least of all because they offered what everyone in their culture wanted and valued. And then they dressed it up in a Christian veneer. They said you could continue to be Christian and have everything the world craved. What an attractive option that appears to be. A comfortable gospel, a domesticated Jesus, salvation and everything the world has to offer. Well, I'll have that. 
But as we return to chapter 6, we'll see that this was no small matter. See, the Corinthians needed to know that the Jesus who calls us to follow him calls us to a life of suffering and hardship and endurance and struggles because that was the life he lived. That was the life that Jesus... We have got that clear, haven't we? He lived a life of struggles and hardship and suffering. Why should we expect that following him will be any different? But if the Christians in Corinth listened to the super apostles, they would never ever live that way. And then they would never be about gospel proclamation because proclaiming the gospel is hard and unpopular. And that's why Paul is so urgent here at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. See what he says. Chapter 6, verse 1, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Can you hear the urgency? Verse 1, I urge you. Verse 2, act now. Don't put it off a minute longer. This issue really matters. He says, eternity is at stake. And you'll see in verse 2 that Paul quotes from Isaiah 49. Now, Isaiah 49 is a proclamation of the purpose of the Lord's people. The Lord, we're told in Isaiah 49, has a global vision for all people, for Gentiles as well as Jews. Now, says Paul in verse 2, is the time for the church to be about that gospel work. Now we must work out God's vision for the world. That is proclaiming the gospel to anyone and everyone. We must do it now, even though it is costly and hard. But of course the Corinthians had been sidetracked by the super apostles. They were into other things. They'd been persuaded to live a comfortable life. And they certainly weren't into anything that would make life difficult and costly like gospel proclamation. Maybe it was just as well because under the influence of the super apostles what gospel would they proclaim anyway? Not the true one. Paul then is urgent to get them to return to the true gospel and to proclaim it. Don't put it off, he says. When I was growing up my mum and dad often used to tell me don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. That's something of what Paul is saying here. As a teenager, I remember my big brother's response. He'd whisper this to me. Why put off till tomorrow what you can put off until next week? (laughs) You see, teenagers live that way. But the Bible says, don't do that with the Lord. See the urgency here. Return to the Lord. It's not an offer that's open forever. Judgment day will come. So, Christian, be about the work of gospel proclamation. You are ambassadors for Christ, chapter 5, verse 20. Now, do you feel this sense of urgency? He wants them to return to the message he preached to them. And here's the key moment for this passage. Why should the Christians in Corinth listen to Paul and not the super apostles? Why should they believe him rather than those that they were now following? And that's the thrust of verses 3 to 13. You can see it's a huge issue. And he's going to lay out for us what is authentic gospel ministry. Paul says, you want to know who to follow. He says, look at my lifestyle. Look at the way I do ministry and you'll see authentic Christian ministry as opposed to this stuff you're hearing from the super apostles. 
See, he says, verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. If now is the time of God's favour, then Paul says, we mustn't do anything that will hinder people from entering into that favour. Verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path. No one could reject Jesus because of the way Paul lived. That's the point. Or to put it positively in verse 4, he lived a way that commended him to others. Look, we've all heard of ministers whose lifestyles have undermined the gospel. We hate it, don't we? There's nothing worse than a pastor who doesn't practice what he preaches. The minister who encourages the congregation to be sold out for Jesus but spends far too much time on the golf course. The pastor who tells the congregation to live sacrificially but who's regularly enjoying exotic holidays. That kind of leadership just doesn't wash. As someone once put it, I can't hear what you're saying for listening to what you are. But that was the kind of lifestyle of the super apostles. And Paul is exposing them there as he lays down his own life and says, I'm showing you what really is true, true Christian leadership is about. So you'd never said of Paul he's a hypocrite. He, avoid, he avoided all kind of hypocrisy like the plague. Verse 3, I don't want my lifestyle to be a stumbling block to anyone. Verse 4, I want my lifestyle to commend the gospel to others. That would be a great thing for us to be able to say, wouldn't it? Because, yes, okay, Paul's an apostle, but we're all meant to be in Christian ministry. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't verses 3 and 4 be great things to say every day? I don't want my lifestyle to be a stumbling block to anyone that I come across, to stop them from following Jesus. Verse 4, I positively want my lifestyle to commend the gospel to others. Wouldn't it be great for us to say, I want you to see, verse 4, that I'm a servant. That's what Paul can say. Serving God and serving others. Now that is what commends Paul to the Corinthians. And what does a commendable lifestyle look like? Well, there are four things here that mark Paul out as different to the super apostles. Firstly, a life of endurance, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, rather as servants of God... We commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. It is a phenomenal list. Only two little verses. Well, one and a half verses, really. What a list. And yet Paul isn't exaggerating here. Read the Acts of the Apostles and you'll see Paul suffering all these things. Every time he preaches, he provokes opposition. He's beaten and flogged and sent to prison. When Paul arrived in a town, he didn't ask what are the hotels like, he asked what are the prisons like here. Every time he preached the gospel, he put his life on the line. And every time he escapes, as you read the Acts of the Apostles, what does he do? Every time he escapes, by the the, the skin of his teeth, what does he go on and do? He gets up and continues to preach the gospel, even though he knows that he's going to suffer for it again, all over again. The list in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, is no exaggeration. And Paul says that's authentic Christian ministry and authentic Christian living. It's tough. You'll be hated, but you must keep going. Do you see how that is so different from the lifestyle that we're actually presented uh, in the world? Everyone says, just have a good time. It's all so comfortable. So countercultural for the Christians, uh, for the Corinthians, and for us, they love the sophisticated and comfortable life. 
And sadly, today in the church, again and again, I hear Christian leaders promising that becoming a Christian will make life better. That is not the promise of the Bible. Christian leaders give the impression that life with Jesus will be a breeze. That is just not true. It's not true. Now, I read Christian paperbacks and hear Christian preachers offering a life of guaranteed health and wealth and success. It's not what the Bible promises. Think of a large church in central London. At a service that a friend of mine was at, the leader asked the congregation, everyone in the congregation who was unemployed, to put their hands up. He then prayed for them and promised them jobs. What is that about? That's simply not true. It's very attractive. You can see why people want to believe it. It's simply not true though, and it's not true because the authentic Jesus suffered at the hands of those he came to save. The real Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He did not promise an existence of ease and comfort in this life. But that's what we want. Because the world is telling us that's what we should have. It's very dangerous. It will be sure to blunt Christian ministry and Christian life. It was caused so alien to the false leaders in Corinth a life of, of hardship. They presented a gospel that was triumphant and comfortable. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 14, if you want to look back later. They would have known nothing of enduring through hardship. And what is so frightening is that we know nothing of this in the West today, do we? Are we not becoming a flabby church? I mean, I'm not talking about us, young. I mean, we do have to include us, but I'm talking about us as a nation. Are we not becoming flabby? Be sure, Christians all over the world are suffering as Paul did. Uh, there was a book that was uh, fairly big a couple of years ago, I think it's still doing the rounds, called The Heavenly Man. I haven't read it, I've just uh, dipped in and out of it. I, I'm not sure I agree with everything in it. But, but there's one very, very striking moment. Uh, it tells how uh, they are training their missionaries in China. Let me quote. Each missionary receives training in several main subjects. These include, one, how to suffer and die for the Lord. We examine what the Bible says about suffering and look at how the Lord's people have laid down their lives for the advance of the gospel throughout history. Two, how to witness for the Lord. We teach how to witness for the Lord under any circumstances, on trains or buses or even in the back of a police van on our way to the execution ground. Three, how to escape for the Lord. We teach the missionaries special skills such as how to free themselves from handcuffs and how to jump from second-story windows without injuring themselves. I mean, it is ama- it's funny, but it's ama- they're serious about this. Because all over the world, if you're going to be serious about following Jesus Christ, this is the sort of thing that's going to happen to you. It's verse 4, isn't it? Enduring through troubles, hardship and distress. That's authentic apostolic Christianity. Paul Barnett writes, the Apostle Paul's experience of pain in the ministry represents an extreme case. Nevertheless, all faithful ministry of reconciliation will involve, to some degree at least, a measure of suffering. I think of a friend of mine here in Britain. He's been vicar of a church for three years. He was a curate uh, some years before that, but he's been vicar of a church for three years. Last year, he organised a mission week. It was the first mission the church had held in living memory 
which is interesting in itself. And during the week, people were converted, the church family was excited, and they were united in a way that they'd not been united before. It was a great week. But within a week or two of the mission ending, a small group on the fringes of things were trying to stir things up for my friend, causing him all kinds of grief, posting lies about him on a website. That's what we can expect when we're about gospel ministry. Verse 4, troubles, hardships, distress. It will come. And we must endure. Authentic Christian living then will result in persecution because that's the life Jesus lived. And that's the life that Jesus promised those who follow him. I wonder if that's how we see the Christian life. Well, Paul commended himself through a life of endurance. Second, he commended himself through a life of purity. Verses 6 and 7. See, he says, we commend ourselves in verse 4, and then in verse 6, we commend ourselves in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Purity, a life of understanding and patience and kindness and truthfulness. It seems so unspectacular. It is actually the most amazing thing in the world. People who live verses 6 and 7 stand out in a crowd because most of us fail to live like this. Politicians don't seem to be able to live like that, do they? Hello, all the superstars in in here can't act like that, can they? Not a life of purity. Living a life of purity is exceptional. A life of this kind of purity is the most potent mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 6 how Paul, this is very interesting in verse 6, how Paul sandwiches the person of the Holy Spirit between kindness and sincere love. Do you see it there? Kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. I think the reason he does that is the Corinthians and the false apostles would have pointed to amazing, ecstatic spiritual experiences as the most compelling signs of the work of the Spirit. And in many churches today, it is the ecstatic and dramatic that are held up as being the authentic marks of the Spirit. Now, don't mishear me now. I'm not saying those things are not true. Don't mishear me. But Paul is clearly saying here, a life of patience and kindness and love is the most authentic manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit leads to holy living. And of course, that kind of holy living draws people to Jesus. I really enjoyed uh, uh, reading this book uh, over the summer, uh, last summer. Uh, I think there are copies on the, uh, on the books, uh, bookshelf. Uh, it, it's got several stories about great Christian people of the past. One is of John Newton, the 18th century Christian leader. Uh, and I love one particular moment when Newton won over a theologically liberal vicar whose name was Thomas Scott. Thomas Scott was in the parish next door to Newton and he scorned John Newton for being an evangelical. But listen to how John Newton won him over. The turning point came when Scott was shamed by Newton's pastoral care for two of his own parishioners whom he had neglected. And then this is what Scott writes. In January 1774, two of my parishioners, a man and his wife, lay at the point of death. I'd heard of the circumstance, but according to my general custom, not being sent for, I took no notice of it, till one evening the woman, 
being now dead and the man dying, I heard that my neighbour, Mr Newton, had been several times to visit them. Immediately my conscience reproached me with being shamefully negligent in sitting at home within a few doors of dying persons, my general hearers, and never going to visit them. Directly it occurred to me that whatever contempt I might have for Mr Newton's doctrines, I must acknowledge his practice to be more consistent with the ministerial character than my own. See what's going on there? He watched his life. He watched the life of a man who was living this verse 6, patience, kindness, sincere love. They are exceptional things in this world. They are the work of the Holy Spirit and they authenticate genuine Christian ministry. As does truthful speech, verse 7. Do you see it there? And again, notice the phrase, the power of God. Again, notice where it comes in verse 7. The power of God is sandwiched between truthful speech and righteousness. If I want to see the power of God at work, I will see it in truthful speech and righteousness. Again, it's an expose of the Corinthians. They love great oratory. They loved these super apostles. They saw brilliant rhetoric as the mark of the power of God. But here, Paul says, it's not how you speak, but what you say. That really is the power of God. Telling the truth is where the power of God is seen. Living a life of righteousness is where the power of God is seen. And that, of course, is what Paul is doing here. Telling the truth about the Christian life being tough. Well, look, you've got to believe in the power of God to tell people that the Christian life is going to be tough because they won't buy into a message like that without the power of God at work. It's much easier to say, come to Jesus and everything will be fine. Much easier to tell people that Jesus wants you to be rich and healthy and successful. You don't need the power of God to, to, to draw people to that kind of message. Everybody wants that kind of message. Truthful speech, telling the truth about following Jesus, that's the mark of the power of God. A life of purity then, that's authentic Christian leadership. Because again, that is exactly how Jesus lived. You look through verses 6 and 7 and say to yourself, was that not Jesus, understanding and patient and kind and sincerely loving, speaking the truth, righteous? A life of endurance, a life of purity. Thirdly, a life of contentment, verses 8 to 10. Verse 8. So you say, again, in verse 4 he says, we, we commend ourselves, verse 8, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's the key phrase, having nothing and yet possessing everything. See, Paul kept going, no matter what his circumstances, because he was content, having nothing and yet possessing everything. He was content. See, in verses 8 to 10, he describes the ups and downs of ministry. Verse 8, in glory or dishonour, he kept going. The Corinthians, on the other hand, only loved glory. That's what impressed them. Do you think they'd have been content when they were dishonoured? Of course they wouldn't. What about us? Will we only do Christian work that will result in glory for us? 
Verse 8, through bad report and good report. See, we know from chapter 3 that the false apostles were all about good reports. They flashed around letters of recommendation. They took those letters around that says, to whoever it may concern, and then they sort of scrolled out this long list of all that they'd achieved. They weren't content with commendation from God. They loved the praise of men and women. Are we the same? Always looking for approval? Well, of course we do that. Of course. But are we always doing that? Are we only happy when somebody has pat us on the back when we've done something for Jesus? It's not for Jesus at all then, is it? It's just we want the pat on the back from someone. Oh, the vicar's never written to me to say thank you. Sorry, that's not a way of me getting out of letters, by the way. It's all the way through these verses. Verse 8, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown. Those are the things that were happening to Paul in Corinth. Yet he carried on because he was content. End of verse 10, having nothing yet possessing everything. You see, Paul had an eternal perspective. What does that mean, having nothing yet possessing everything? I wonder if we've got it as clear as Paul had. Christian, whether you know it or not, you possess everything. Jesus says you will inherit the earth. On the final day, the new heavens and the new earth, you'll inherit it all. It will all be yours. Everything is all ours. Now, if I've got that perspective, I can cope with the ups and downs now, can't I? How are you going on contentment? The marks of genuine Christian ministry, a life of endurance, a life of purity, a life of contentment, and fourthly, a life of vulnerability. Look at verse 11. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. I love these last verses. They're, they're very touching. Paul had opened his life to the Corinthians. And you know, that is such a risky thing to do. When you or I open our hearts to others, we run the risk of getting hurt. Do you know that feeling? When I was training to do this job at Theological College, I was hurt badly by one or two people. And a few weeks later, I went to New York to work with drug addicts and the homeless uh, for seven weeks uh, in, in my summer vacation. I remember as I got on the plane, I went determined not to be hurt again. I was determined not to open up my heart so that I could be hurt. I, I would go and serve the homeless and the drug addicts. I would tell them the gospel, but I wasn't going to have my heart broken again. I was going to keep it sort of intact. Let me tell you, it was a hopeless way to be a minister of the gospel. I'm so grateful to the Lord that while I was there, I saw someone opening their lives to me and it taught me that I needed to do the same. And virtually from that moment on, I've carried around with me this, uh, well, it's a dog-eared little piece of paper. It lives in my diary. Uh, It's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I read just shortly after. To love all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable 
irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can perfectly be safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Vulnerability. It's very dangerous, but you can't be a Christian minister without it. You can't live the Christian life without it. But the Corinthians love self-sufficiency. The false apostles talked about power. To be dependent and vulnerable was to them a mark of spiritual weakness. But Jesus was vulnerable. He gave himself to those who would reject him. He gave everything he loved to those who would kick sand in his face and worse. You see, it is Jesus who is all these things. Jesus endured and was pure and content and vulnerable. And so to follow a gospel that is anything less than this is to follow another Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, it is a very real temptation for us to do that because our world loves beauty, wealth and success. Our world craves those things. We love them too. So Paul says, don't throw away the true Jesus for those things, as attractive as they might seem. Beware of the church that talks more of the easy, victorious life than the endurance needed in following Jesus. Beware of Christianity that emphasises the ecstatic to the detriment of purity. Beware the church leader that's only happy when things are going well and, and knows nothing of contentment in all circumstances. Beware a spirituality that leaves you self-sufficient and undermines vulnerability. And know that in a world obsessed with beauty, wealth, success and luxury, to live a life of endurance, purity, contentment and vulnerability will be a very refreshing change. Let's pray together. Our Father, as ever, we see the way that your word cuts right through our hearts and our society, the way that it reveals us as we really are and shows us all our weaknesses and our sinfulness. And yet we thank you that you give us a message of grace and of forgiveness. We ask you not just as individuals but as the people of God here in Fullwood, as a body, as a family, to forgive us for the way that we crave success and health and wealth and the easy life over what we've said we really believe in, which is the Christian life. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we recognise that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the sort of life we've been seeing in the scriptures today. Would you move among us now? Would you transform us? Please make us different people. And may we live lives which bring glory and honour to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lives which really, truly reflect the great gospel that we have to proclaim. In Jesus' name. Amen.